afternoon now, 5.30, and then they uh, open our evening service. So we thanks, thanks to Landon and Vance and uh, Gracie and all those that lead. And of course, there's a, the instrumentation and so forth, great opportunity to use their gifts and talents to glorify the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, thanks also to, to Lynn and Jesse for leading us this morning as well. For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you. And with our congregation, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is the fourth Sunday. I think there's probably going to be one more message. Uh, I doubt very seriously I'll finish this morning. I know that's no surprise to you, but it's a very in-depth subject that we're focused on, and that is immaculate worship, instructive worship, and it's important that we give it our full attention. <clears throat> we started a few weeks ago looking at the controversial Christ. And in this, we looked at um, the fact that God uh, interrupted the world for the purpose of interrogating the world so that the world may understand that the initiative of God was to save his people from their sins and to teach them how to worship, to instruct them how to worship. And every once in a while, somebody will ask, well, if we're born again, why does the Lord leave, leave us on this mortal earth? I mean, we read a passage of scripture this morning from 1 John 2. We're tempted to love the world. Yes, we are. Jesus was tempted to love the world, but he didn't. So we're to be like Christ. And that's a difficult thing in Western culture, a difficult thing around the world. So it's important that we understand that one of the reasons that he left us here, obviously, was to be a testimony to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also that we may learn how to worship in this sin-cursed world so that when we pass from this life to God's heaven, it's God's heaven, it's not ours, it's his heaven, once we go home to be with him, that we would have at least a foretaste of what worship should be like, and that's what we've been focused on over these past few weeks. Now, this morning I'm going to back up uh, with uh, and start with verse 17 and read through verse 26 of John 4. We will be in different passages of Scripture, of course, this morning. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus asked her to go call her husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you've well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Your fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming uh, when you will neither worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, um, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So he revealed himself as the Messiah. And that is, uh, that's one of the, the focal points of this particular chapter. It's not about the woman necessarily, although she's converted. And she goes back to uh, her village and calls the village out. And many of those individuals are converted also. But the focus is always on Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, and we'll look at that later on this morning, but in John chapter 3, you have a story of Nicodemus coming to the Savior. So a sinner seeks the Savior. Now that's rare. The only reason Nicodemus came to Jesus was 
to provoke controversy, and Jesus fell right into it and followed the controversy. We'll see that uh, later on. John 4, Jesus here initiates the controversy. So in John 3, a sinner seeks the Savior. John 4, the Savior seeks the sinner. So John beautifully, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, puts this in Scripture for us to teach us how to worship. They both are instrumental. Jesus told Nicodemus, you cannot be, you cannot uh, go into heaven until you've been born again. You cannot learn how to worship until you've been born again. You may be a smart guy, Nicodemus, but you do not know me. And here, we have a woman who likewise was smart because she tried to turn the tables on the Lord, and the Lord being the Lord, said, nope, we're not going to go that way. We're going to talk about worship. And you don't know how to worship because you're ignorant of the one that you worship. So this teaches us a great deal about the opportunity that we have to come before the Messiah, I who speak to you, am he. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the grand opportunity to be in your house again, to learn of you, and to learn that you will instruct us how we are to worship you. As Jesus said, you seek those that worship in both spirit and in truth. In his name we pray. Amen. First slide, if you would, Brother Jeff. R.C. Sproul's been with the Lord now for about six years, said nothing is more foreign to our foreign, uh, fallen state rather than authentic worship. This does not mean we have ceased worshiping altogether. There's myriads of types of worship all over this planet this morning. Rather, it means we have become idolaters, transferring worship from God to something in the created order. Paul, of course, spoke, speaks to that at length in Romans chapter 1. And idolatry, Old Testament, we've looked at that. In fact, we'll see in just a moment a story about idolatry. Idolatry means we erect an altar as a substitute for God. Now, it doesn't have to be physical. It certainly can be spiritual, and Jesus is speaking to that here. Sometimes we do this when we participate in corporate worship, which we are this morning. Our minds wander. I know that never happens to you, but it does happen to me. We get bored. I know that never happens to you, but it does happen to me. And sometimes we... Sneak a peek at the watch. That preacher has gone long again. My mind, one of the hymnists wrote, is prone to wonder, Lord. Forgive me. This lady's mind, John 4, attempted to wander, to distract the Savior. So we have examined over the past couple of weeks rational worship. We are moved from rational worship when this happens to irrational worship. We think we're worshiping, but it's not in spirit, nor is it in truth. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that begins with the need to love God and desire him. So do we. We say we love God. Do we desire God? Any form of worship that appeals to our senses and emotions, which does not fully involve our minds, especially such worship that claims to be greater than or superior to mere preaching is suspect. And we live in a day and age, in fact, this, it's not unique to this time. We saw last week from Acts 17, where the, there were those that called Paul a 
who was preaching a, a babbler, a picker of seeds. But any that attempts to downgrade the preaching of the word of God is suspect. Remember that, any. So turn with me, hold your place there. We'll come back to John 4 in a momentarily. But let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18. We've been back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament. A little background, there had been a um, uh, drought in uh, Israel for three years, over three years. And uh, Elijah, verse chapter 18, verse 1, it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year of the drought, saying, go, pre go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. It is interesting that the famine in Samaria, a famine and also a drought, the famine was not only a natural occurrence because of the drought, but it was also a famine in hearing the word of God. This famine, and this occurred about 700 B.C., somewhere around that time, okay? This famine had extended to the time of Christ when Christ made a journey to Samaria to a village called Sychar. So what we're reading here in the Old Testament has the full bloom, if you please, of Christ being the living water. Drought, living water. What a remarkable Savior we have. I want you, if you would, drop down. We know the story here. This is, uh, this is the story of Elijah before the prophets of Baal. And <clears throat> if you would, look at uh, verse 15. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. Talking about Ahab. And uh, it happened, verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Are you the one that's caused all this drought in Israel? And so the prophet of God gets blamed for something that was actually God's doing to begin with. God caused the drought. And Ahab's upset about it. And Verse 18, Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. And so there's a great test that takes place. Verse 20, Ahab sent for all the chil children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. And then the people did a very American thing, but the people answered him not a word. We're going to wait and see, because we don't want to be left out if you're wrong. And this is true today. People don't change. And he begins to prepare for the descent of uh, uh, the fire from God. Verse 24. You call on the name of your gods, prophets of Baal. I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. And all the people answered and said, that's well spoken. It's good. Okay, we agree with that. We may not agree with you, but we agree with the choice there. So the story, beginning in verse 25 and down, through the, down to verse uh, 31, is the story of what happens with the prophets uh, of Baal. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. We had looked at this in First Kings, excuse me, in Second Kings 17, in the area of Samaria. So they were worshiping Baal, and the altar that had been prepared years before 
for Jehovah was in disrepair. So the prophet repairs the altar. He took 12 stones. Now this is in Samaria. This is after the separation of uh, Israel, the northern 10 tribes, which became Samaria, and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that remained in and around Jerusalem. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. He did not exclude Judah and Benjamin, neither did he exclude Samaria. Uh, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And he built the altar. He douses the altar with the most precious commodity in Samaria at that time, which is water. He did it three times, verse 35. The water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. He doused it. He made good and certain that it was soaking. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and I am your servant. Now this is God in Samaria. You're the God in Samaria. And I've done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned your hearts back and you have turned their hearts back to you again. Fire of the Lord consumed, fell, consumed the burnt offering. The wood and the stones and the dust had licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Okay, we agree. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now do you think they're worshiping? Which way is the wind blowing today? And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them escape. And so they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he executed them. This is a picture of worship. Well, preacher can be worship. All these people have done. No. The Lord had told Israel years before, 700 years before this, they were to have no gods before them. They were to remove the false idols. You cannot worship God rationally and hang on to an idol. Elijah declared the reason that Yahweh was to be worshipped because he was greater than Baal. And the people humbled themselves, falling prostrate, and they worshipped God. Now they worshipped the God that they knew because they saw the evidence of what God was going to do. What we have today is the record of the evidence of what God did. That alone should be enough to prompt us to worship. But there's something within us that always requires a little bit more. There must be something else that God can do to bring me to a point of worship. So heart worship must be the worship of both spirit and truth. And it's based on the knowledge of a rational God. What you have here is a rational God. Now, some people think that God's acting irrationally. He's killing these people. Or he's had Elijah to kill these people. But no, God's acting rationally because he had already instructed Israel not to worship other gods. To remove from you these idols. We are made rational beings so that his rational revelation will lead us to the cross. We must always stop by the cross, which results in a rational worship with all of our minds. Next slide. <clears throat> now 
And so we know that earthly worship is imperfect. We're worshiping the Lord this morning, but we know that it's imperfect. Whatever we do in this world is imperfect. Only heavens is immaculate, and only heavens is impeccable. But as Jesus instructed the woman at the well about worship, you and I need to know about worship. We likewise need to be instructed. John Newton, captain of a slave ship that was converted, became a Baptist pastor back in the 1700s, was one of the men along with Wilberforce and many others instrumental in removing <clears throat> slavery from the British Isles, who wrote Amazing Grace, also wrote this, weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought, but when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. So we have to see God high and lifted up. As Elijah here before thousands of people, displayed the power of God. Let's go back to John 4. <clears throat> Read again, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband, come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband, and that you have spoken truly. John Piper said this about these verses. <clears throat> he said, Jesus is surgically, is a surgically penetrating prophet who lays bare our souls and knows us to the bottom of our being. You may be here this morning and think you have some little sin, or no sin is little, but for the sake of uh, illustration, some little sin that God knows nothing about. You are being deceived, and you need to be instructed that obviously he does. knows us to the bottom of our being, and pursues us anyway. That's what Jesus is doing. He loves this woman. Now, he loves her and tells her the truth. He doesn't gloss over her sin. That's what we want. We want a Jesus that glosses over our sin. Well, Jesus will accept me as I am. Yes, just as I am. The truth of the matter is Jesus accepts us in spite of who we are. That's what we see here. Despite who we are, Christ saves us so that we might worship him. Now what we see here is a confrontation of the woman's sin. For there's no worship until this happens a confrontation of the woman at the well and her sin. And our confrontation, the confrontation that the Word of God, through the Spirit, Jesus, if you want to use him as uh, an illustration, you certainly can, a confrontation of our sin begins rational worship. That's what Elijah did. A confrontation. We cannot worship this woman cannot worship. She cannot be saved until she acknowledges her sinfulness. So this is essential. That's rational worship. We spent a couple of Sundays looking at that. So let's look at spiritual worship. And these verses, verses 21 through 24, which we've read in your hearing this, this morning, the Lord says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is. So Jesus 
when you look at this passage, there are major principles for us understanding spiritual worship. Now, the first element of this is truth, is rational. That's what we've addressed. Now, he's going to talk about the spirit. And in order for us to worship him in spirit, we have to, our spirit has to change. Now, this is not only unique here to the woman of the well, but turn back a couple, couple of pages to John chapter 3. Beautiful passage. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Complimented Jesus, but Jesus did not take the compliment. He answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God. You're a highly religious man. You're a ruler of the Jews, but you're not born again. And Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb? And Jesus answered, Assuredly, or truly, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do, don't marvel that I say to you, don't, don't get caught up on stumps necessarily. Don't marvel, but I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And then Jesus confronts him. You are the ruler of the Jews, and you don't know these things? So here is a highly intelligent, highly educated highly religious man that was dead in trespasses and sins. He was worshiping in the, according to the Jews, the proper place, Jerusalem. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Surely I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen and you do not receive our witness. We speak what we know. I've told you earthly things and you don't believe them. How are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then, of course, he goes into that wonderful passage about Moses lifting up the spirit, verse 15, or the, the serpent, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, we, and this, this continues all the way through verse 21. So Jesus engaged in a controversy with Nicodemus because Nicodemus should have known. The woman at the well was ignorant because she was a Samaritan and they only subscribed to the first five books of the Bible. She would not have known. So we can have all this knowledge and be an unsaved sinner or we could have all this ignorance and when we come repent of our sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, be born again. This sets the world, these two passages, by the way, sets the world on its ear. And we're like Nicodemus. How can these things be? Because it's the power of God that does this. William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury many, many years ago, wrote this, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. The fact that God is separate from us. And that there's nothing we can do about that, save Jesus. To feed the mind with the truth of God. 
to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. That's to worship. In John 4, turn over now to John 4. We've read this passage, of course, and in verses 21 and 22, Jesus said, worship's not only rational, it's not only in truth, but it's also spirit. And you will see, see when you look at this, it says, uh, uh, God is spirit, uh, capital S, verse 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, little s, and truth. Now, most of those that comment on this verse would say that spirit, capital S, is the Holy Spirit. I would subscribe to that, and that spirit, little s, is human spirit. And when you look at this passage, that seems to be the one that makes the most sense. Worship is rational, but because God is spirit and he made us spirits, Jesus' confrontation and his conversation with this woman begins with addressing the proper place. That's what the woman was trying to do. We worship on this mountain. It's the place where you worship that is important. Well, is that what Jesus said? Was it Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship? Or was it Mount Zion where the Jews in Jerusalem worship? Next slide if you would, brother. So Jesus says, yes, for the time being, he says, uh, when you will, there's coming a time when you won't worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But he does say that salvation is of the Jews. So he is pointing back to Jerusalem, and he subscribed to that. Mount Zion was the place for the time being. But Jesus, as Messiah, and that's what he tells her in verses 25 through 26, is the person to worship. There's something within human nature that wants to deviate from what God is saying. And that's what this woman is doing. Well, we worship here. Well, she was worshiping there, and actually there's some questions to whether or not she did, but she pointed to that to distract the Lord. It's the person of Jesus. It is not the where we worship. Now, we're here this morning in a, in a beautiful sanctuary that the Lord has blessed us with. But it's not the where you worship. Now, I'm going to explain this in, in a little more detail. But you're saying, oh, preacher, you're saying we well, you can go to the seashore, we can go to the mountain. That's not what Jesus said. And that's not what I'm saying. It's not the where we worship. It's the who we worship. Jesus has already talked to a man on Mount Zion in the temple, Nicodemus. So it certainly wasn't the where. It was the who. The place, Jesus said, is replaced by the person. God's nature is non-physical. He teaches us that. God is spirit. Not in philosophical terms, non-corporeal. In other words, he's, you can't move your hands and disturb God. God is spirit. It's non-physical. And because God is non-physical, our worship doesn't hinge upon a place. So, our nature of worship must match with God's nature. And God has a twofold nature. It is, He is both rational, gave us the Word, 
truth and spiritual. The love between the Father and the Son manifests the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit obviously is the Spirit of God. So Jesus not only talks about the person, not only he talk, does he talk about the who, but now he addresses the how we are to worship. How to worship. Wouldn't you like to have a, a little book? Five easy steps in how to worship. Well, the Old Testament gives us some insight into this, and we'll cover this the next time. We won't cover it this morning. It's too in-depth, but we'll cover this. But see, what, what human beings do, what sinners do, is we take the list. Some of you are incessant list makers. You know who you are. And so we start to make the list. We've got to do this, 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 this. And that's what we want to know about worship. Well, I had my prayers. I can check that off. I had my Bible reading. I can check that off. I went to church. I can check that off. I went to give to tithe. I checked that off. I pray. I do all of these things. But that's not worship. Our nature must match with God's nature. So we have to follow truth. And that truth must reach, must reach down to the elements, the deepest elements of our heart and our soul. It doesn't just resonate on the ears. It reaches down and changes our life. Now, the Samaritans have rejected about 75% of the Old Testament. They only focused on the Pentateuch, uh, Pentateuch, the first five books. But because they rejected 75% of the Old Testament, they didn't know what truth was. Now, Nicodemus, on the other hand, subscribed to all the Old Testament, but still did not see the Messiah as he stood directly in front of him. So we can know these things, and that's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. How is it, Nicodemus, that you know these things? You're the teacher. You should know these things, but you don't. So, worship has to be in truth. In contrast to the Pharisees, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Their focus was on externalism and their self-righteousness. And that's what Nicodemus is doing. Worship must be spiritual. And Jesus goes into that depth of detail in John 3 and mentions it, of course, here in John chapter 4. Because the Trinity is spirit, our worship must be in spirit. And our worship is not found in mountains or seashores. And while we worship in this building this morning, this is a sanctuary. The place that believers worship is here. We come to be assembled. That's why we're here. It wasn't the temple that saved. It was the Trinity. And how we get that confused. I'm sure all of you at one time or another have heard people say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to a building to worship. Yeah, well, I would agree with that to a certain extent. But when it's commanded that we come together so that we may corporately <coughs> worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, we don't corporately worship the Lord in spirit and in truth on the seashore. We don't corporately worship the Lord in spirit and truth on a mountaintop. Now, could we assemble there and do that? Yes, we could. But when we vacate, and it's important to remember this, when we vacate the house of God, we typically vacate the person of God.
So remember, when we look at the natural beauty of what God has created, and we understand that this fallen world is the, keep this in mind, when we look at this world, and privilege to travel all over this globe, and there are beautiful places all over the earth, not just America. When we look at the beauty of the earth, be reminded that God had, has created a world that is as beautiful as he could make it even though it is fallen. What a God we serve. And yes, I've been moved when I've seen the majesty of mountains. I've been moved when I've seen the, the uh, seashore and all manner of things, okay? The deserts, deserts are beautiful. Rivers, are you, you, you folks, have, you know, you know exactly what I'm referring to. But for some reason, we have talked ourselves into believing that we never have to come into the house of God and we can worship him. This is, this is countered by Jesus on every single Sabbath day he was on the earth. Where was he? Where was he? He was in the synagogue. Every feast day, the Lord was in Jerusalem, in the temple. The person we are to worship went to the place. So there is no amount of human intelligence that can describe for us or that can eliminate the call of God's people to gather together to hear truth spoken by the Spirit. Now, is it okay to go to the mountains and go to the seashore and all these other places? Absolutely. Absolutely. But when it becomes a priority, we have displaced the person for the place. God help us not to do that. Spirit is not found, uh, our worship of him not found in mountains or seashores or even buildings. It is within his children. So collectively this morning, those of us that know the Lord Jesus as Savior are here so that we may learn of him and then move out to the world. The worship that pleases God, and Jesus says is God is seeking these, is eternal, is internal rather, not external. The praise comes from our hearts, not from our lips. Now obviously if it's in our hearts, it does come out. But it's, it's not uh, hypocritical. It's spiritual, not ritualistic. Our changed spirit. See, this woman, neither Nicodemus nor this woman had a changed spirit. Not before Jesus confronts them. Neither one. Our changed spirits are moved to him, moved towards him in love. Why? Because his spirit has entered our spirit. We then obey problem with the Samaritans, they didn't obey. problem with most, <laughs> most people, myself included, is we, we don't obey. If we love, we obey. And the knowledge of the holy. Turn with me to Proverbs uh, 30. I think I'm going to close with this this morning because it's we'll go on quite a while if we don't. Go to Proverbs 30.
The last two Proverbs, or at least this, this one in particular, of the chapters that we have here, brought in chapter 30, is not written by Solomon. It was written by uh, a man by the name of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance. This man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel, and to Ucal. So we think that Solomon included it or was included in the book of Proverbs because it spoke to his heart. And Agur says this, Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? If you know. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield of those who put their trust in him. Do you have the knowledge of the holy this morning? And is the knowledge of the holy a spiritual knowledge found in the truth of the word of God? Has it moved you to confess your sins? Have you acknowledged your sins? We find that the woman at the well did. We find later on that Nicodemus perhaps did as well. An acknowledgement of sin is primary to understanding the need for rational and spiritual worship. Once we do that, our hearts are open. We looked at a couple of passages of Scripture in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles a few weeks ago, how that one of the last kings of, of Judah invited the Samaritans to come. We saw this morning, 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah, there in Samaria, went there because God sent him in order that he would deal with Ahab and eliminate the prophets of Baal. Now we know later that there was a small revival in Samaria, but it wasn't long before they turned and went right back to what they were doing. So we have opportunity to have our spirits changed by the, by the living spirit of God, and when it is changed, then we move to him in love, we move to him in obedience, and then we desire the knowledge of the holy. I am more stupid, Agur says, than any man. Now, it takes a pretty intelligent man to write that, or a woman, to come to a point to where we say, I'm not as bright as I thought I was. And that is especially true when we look at the Word of God. I'm not as bright as I thought I was. Nicodemus thought he was pretty bright. He was not as bright as he thought he was. The woman at the well tried to move the conversation away from her sin. She found out she was not as bright as she thought she was. This is a human trait. And this human trait must be dealt with by the Spirit of God so that we learn that we don't worship in a place, we worship a person. It is not the where, it's the who. And once we learn and come to faith in the who, then he instructs us in how to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you confronted both Nicodemus and the woman at the well and, and lovingly. These were not harsh words, Father, but they were loving words meant to cause them to examine themselves and see whether or not they're in the faith. And so our prayer this morning, Lord Jesus, is that you would move us to that truth. Those perhaps that are unsaved today, bring them to that point. That is an act, a conviction is an act of love. A conviction is an act of grace how twisted we make the conviction of the Spirit of God. It is a good thing. It is because of your kindness that any of us 
are brought to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So reveal that truth to us today as believers. Encourage us so that we follow Lord Jesus, the how of instruction. And remember that our worship is always focused on Jesus Christ. Yes, we can worship privately, but Father, we likewise are to worship corporately because it's instructed in the truth. That's our rational, rational worship. It is our, as Paul wrote, our reasonable service. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>